This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We've all heard about so-called legacy brands, companies that have a historic past to them and have been around for quite some time. But there is a difference in what makes a legacy brand today compared with 30 years ago. In many cases, those companies were driven by short-term success, what showed up on those quarterly earnings statements. But the legacy brands today must have longer-term goals in mind if they want to stay effective and current. Lucas Connolly and Mark Miller are authors of the book Legacy in the Making, Building a Long-Term Brand to Stand Out in a Short-Term World. And it's a pleasure to have them joining us on the show. Lucas and Mark, great to have you both with us today. Good morning for having us. Great to have you both. Uh, so you say that legacy brands, uh, you know, that are on the S and P five hundred, they are having a shorter run and normal because of this thinking that they have right now. Mark, tell us more. So we we cite a fact in our book, and uh, an article recently went up on the um, on the on the Wharton page details the same fact, which is uh, in the nineteen twenties, the average lifespan of a company in the S and P five hundred was sixty seven years. And today, that number is more like 15 years. And we sort of conclude, as we do our analysis, uh, that we live in a short-term world where the products we buy can often outlast the brands that made them. And we do a lot of work in our end in the automotive space, and it wasn't too long ago that people were buying Saturn vehicles uh, somewhat prolifically. And then, before you know it, Saturn not around as a brand anymore. And so our point of view is it's simply systematic of leaders focused on short-term thinking. Uh, I myself went to business school. I learned all the things that business school tells us is is a responsible and right thing to do. You you maximize shareholder revenue. You build empires. You target as many consumers as you can. You lead in your categories, and you achieve your 15 minutes of fame and fortune. And and it seems to be that kind of thinking is um, at a bit of an epidemic right now where we see what's happening with brands like GE and the Dow and some of the brands uh, on the S&P 500. Lucas? Absolutely. We, we had an opportunity in, in the research for this book to speak to a lot of brands that are thinking differently, um, brands that are looking ahead with a different set of values. And as, during that process, we started to recognize some patterns. Um, the foreword to our book, for example, is, a, is a, um, written by Yvonne Chouinard at Patagonia. And uh, he lays out a, 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 a very clear vision for how he approached business from the very beginning. Um, and we talk a bit about those transformations, those, those uh, changes to how business is um, how business is being done now. Um, uh, from from uh, the case of GE, we, we lay out some of the examples uh, in the article um, online. How how so specifically with GE? Because obviously they, they have been one of the true legacy companies of this country for such a long period of time, and now we're starting to see them break apart and and GE focusing on specific uh, areas instead of having this kind of multi sector approach right now, Lucas. Well, GE obviously is a conglomerate that was, was built up to something like $400 billion under, under Jack Welch. So he got very large. And Jeff Immelt, the uh, CEO that followed him, spent much of the last 15, 20, 20 years, 16 years, I think, uh, bringing that back down to a company that was more manageable, um, dropping a lot of uh, the various um, industries that they had gotten into that, they, that were not core to their original businesses. Um, uh, and, and looking ahead, what, what GE is trying to do is co- uh, uh, streamline some of those businesses to the core of it, uh, expertise it has in things like energy, things like renewables, things like aviation. 
Um, and it looks like the, even in the, in the next uh, couple of years, we're looking at a company that will shed another $20 billion in assets. But what's interesting, Mark, is, is that we've seen a lot of companies uh, have to file uh, Chapter 11 or Chapter 7 for bankruptcy protection uh, in the last few years. GE hasn't been uh, one of them. But, but obviously, this is a, a very concerning time, I think, for a lot of companies in general either ones that are, are on their way out or maybe in the next five to ten years could be no longer in existence. Absolutely. Coincident um, with our thinking and writing, and we began researching in 2012 when this was sort of a, a topic that was just beginning to, to bubble up a little bit. I'd say if you look at the past several months, whether it's Toys R Us, a company from 1948, or Neko, uh, the New England confectionery company from 1901, or I myself, I'm a guitar player, Gibson Guitars, a brand from 1902, as you say, they've all recently filed for bankruptcy uh, protection. Radio Shack, a brand from 1921, has filed for bankruptcy uh, twice. And as you say, the, the news headlines are um, filled, proliferated with brands like Sears from the uh, late 1800s, um, Guitar Center, uh, sometimes J. Crew, and, and on. It seems like many brands that have been around for a long time that have traded on the fact that they've been around for a long time are finding themselves in the place of um, questioning their relevance from a consumer, uh, consumer point of view and a market point of view. Mark, are, are you able to touch on, from a historic perspective, where this shift in mindset surrounding legacy really has gotten started? Has there been a tipping point along the way where we are have obviously starting to see more and more companies understand that, that legacy is not just worrying about their quarterly earnings statement? It's a, it's a lot more than that. I think what we see happening is in pockets and quarters, uh, not because it's the trendy thing to do, but because they're people who are driven by values. We see leaders of organizations, uh, Lucas mentioned Yvonne Chouinard, uh, he's one of the many that we talk about in the book, one of the many that we admire and have regard for. Um, but certainly uh, coming out of the Great Recession, you see brand leaders, just like consumers, um, questioning, evaluating, reconsidering the importance of things in our life, the importance of money, the importance of time with friends and family, the importance that work plays. And if time is short and money is limited, um, we see a, a large number of influential people saying, I'd rather spend my time and money on things that are ultimately meaningful. And it's not that they avoid profit at all costs. In fact, many of these same leaders are incredibly profitable. Uh, Patagonia is an example of a brand that does quite well uh, from a fiscal point of view. Um, but they're brands that think about things beyond money. Money gives them the opportunity to afford staff. Money gives them the opportunity to um, ex expand uh, uh, nationally, globally. Um, but money isn't the thing that they're pursuing ultimately. And so, as I said, maybe Great Recession was a bit of a tipping point. Um, but in places and spaces, in many categories, we find examples of these rare and special people doing remarkable work. But it, it's interesting, Lucas, because you see more companies having – uh, the civic mind or thinking about their consumer or thinking about uh, the culture around their company or, or around their community. Uh, it's not like investors are concerned about the company making money. They obviously want them to make the money. They just want them to have more of a, a, a well-rounded well focus uh, on what are the important things that, that a company should be thinking about. Absolutely. And, you know, we actually caught on to this um, in, in, in the research and when we saw um, companies focusing more on long-term values years ago. Um, you, you see a lot of this in, in, in modern brands that are, are founded recently, but, and, and we're noticing legacy brands, brands that have been around for a long time, starting to transfer this way. 
I think one of the challenges that you see uh, public companies facing is that they're actually dealing with legacy systems. For example, you know, quarterly earnings reports, um, the, the actual uh, in, investment system is built around a quarterly um, estimates and quarterly goals. Um, uh, the, one of the um, recent articles we noted in the piece that we published on Wharton was an uh, op-ed in the Wall Street Journal uh, by Warren Buffett and, and Jamie Dimon. Um, in which they they argue for dropping quarterly targets entirely. Um, uh, that that a lot of the innovation, the research and uh, development um, that companies are are able to do is is hampered by the desire to meet those quarterly goals. So sometimes it's really the this, the, the transition that we're noticing right now is is in the legacy systems that companies are up against. You, you talk in the book about uh, five transformations. And if you wouldn't mind, take us through what they are and, and how you see them playing out on, a, on, a, on an annual basis right now. Lucas, Mark, who would like to take that? Lucas, Mark, you want to uh, start with those? Start. Yeah, sure. And then you can jump in. So um, at the start of this discussion, we referenced uh, some of the old world thinking about how companies uh, were meant to succeed. For example, maximizing shareholder revenue. And our book sort of systematically walks through the bits of inspiration and observation and insight we gathered from the leaders that we spoke to that sort of debunk these longstanding uh, beliefs w- with modern, uh, modern thinking. So they, they work like this. Uh, the first piece goes from thinking about leadership as being uh, by committee and being organizational to leadership being something incredibly personal. Uh, the leaders, uh, successful leaders who don't just survive but thrive for generations to come, think about things where they make contribution to society versus simply extracting value from society. So the first piece is all about taking leadership personally. Second piece is all about behaving your beliefs, uh, beliefs, and that is not just um, repeat after me and do as I say, but it's making sure we build organizations where people who work at all levels believe just like the people who initiated the brand, who founded the brand, who can carry those values forward in perpetuity. The third piece isn't just about hoarding information and telling customers um, you will follow, you will buy what we sell. But it's about inviting outsiders in and treating outsiders, in a sense, not as outsiders, but owners of the brand who will take the products, the services, the stories, and values and perpetuate them with us and for us. The fourth piece is about inventing your own game. It's a, a popular refrain to say uh, these days, don't just be the best at what you do, but be the only ones who do it. And Yvonne at the front of the book leans into that, and there's a whole chapter in the book that tells stories about Grey Goose and Belmont Steaks and Lexus as a brand um, as evidence of inventing your own game. And finally, the, the fifth piece is about doing it in perpetuity. We call it never stop making your legacy. And sort of our thinking goes like this. There are plenty of people who read their brand history over and over again, but we really stand for and um, have a reverence for the ones who are helping to write their history every day all the time. And on that point specifically, Mark, when you're talking about building out that new legacy, to a degree, does it not also have to be a bit fluid to be able to adapt to all of the changes that may be coming your way and not be kind of this set pattern uh, company that uh, that some companies have been and some companies have seen gone out the door? Entirely. We have um, a piece that we've included at the front of the book that talks about the short-term thinker's blind spot. And it effectively says there are two mistakes that leaders of brands can make when they, when they look at history. One is they hold on to it dearly because who can blame a leader for repeating success of the past? If it happens to fail in today's context, they can always lean on the fact, but it had worked before. And on the other end, you have the ones who say, uh, forget the past that, w- that was in the past 
it's all about the moment. It's all about now. Let's make money today. Let's be famous today and move on. And our perspective is it's an artificial choice between saying there is only the past or there is only the moment. Our thinking, informed by the leaders that we spoke to, is it's really all about finding ways to bring the past forward. What do you hang on to? Uh, what do you get rid of? What do you evolve? What do you create? As you say, there needs to be a degree of fluidness because the world we live in, 2018, is very different than uh, Great Recession years and very different than the years before that. And years from now, it'll be different as well. Take us through, Lucas, what you, what you saw. You mentioned, uh, Mark mentioned the Belmont Stakes, which obviously is one of the three Triple Crown uh, horse races, which it, it's, I mean, when you think of it, it, it is obviously, it is a legacy, but I think a lot of people don't think of it as having to be kind of a fluid, changing idea. Yeah, and this is a really interesting example, actually, because here is a horse race um, that's uh, been been around since the 1880s. Um, it's the original race in the Triple Crown, um, and uh, yet horse racing has lost a generation of fans. So in, in looking how to revitalize the legacy of this brand, um, the, they, they looked outside their category. Um, this is something that I believe that, the, that, that um, you'll see with a lot of brands when they're uh, looking to um, – uh, move forward is, is not simply trying to catch up with others in the category, but to define the category rather than letting it define them. Um, he, here uh, with the Belmont Stakes, we've seen in recent years uh, incorporating new technologies um, that you'll see typically in sports like the NFL or the NBA. Um, they've been, they've uh, changed the race from a single day to a festival, so now there are three days of events. Um, they've um, they've looked for um, ways to um, integrate the the race in media and talk about the race beyond um, the traditional uh, horse race um, um, media that you'll you'll see people follow. For example, they've even brought in bands after the race, um, uh, mainstream groups like the Goo Goo Dolls, to to kind of uh, incorporate the race into the New York culture um, and make it the official. Um, opening of summer, uh, much like the U.S. Open there in New York is the official closing of the summer. Hey, you also, speaking of sports franchises, you also talk about the Toronto Maple Leafs uh, in the book as well, Mark. And I'd be interested to know what was it about the, the, the Toronto Maple Leafs that, that you saw that that needed to change or needed to adapt to, to this year, these types of uh, scenarios? So I admit my bias. I'm originally from Toronto, Canada, so I grew up <laughs> A Leafs fan, albeit I grew up a Leafs fan uh, at a time where the team had a reputation that was wonderful based on their past, but had a, a, a contemporary expression of that um, culture and history that was quite poor. I lived through um, a number of losing years, and my observation of the team, no dissimilar for, not dissimilar from the leaders who came in to then uh, run the organization and, and uh, take it forward, was it was an organization that did have a glorious past. Um, it was one of those hockey dynasties. This hockey team won 13 Stanley Cups going back to 1918, uh, but they haven't won a cup for something like 50 or 51 years. Brendan Shanahan, a guy who grew up in and around Toronto, famous hockey player, comes in to lead the organization forward. Um, he immediately leans into a number of the aspects from the past, particularly the culture, uh, bringing back some of the famous stories, some of the famous players who were there when the team was performing incredibly well and using that as inspiration. Concurrently, he builds a front office structure made up of guys, uh, principally guys, who knew all about uh, winning. Um, Lou Lamorello, uh, there for a number of years, um, the only general manager in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Mike Babcock, 
uh, one of the most impressive uh, resumes of modern-day hockey coaches. And, of course, Brendan there with a bit of hockey pedigree and, of course, some business pedigree. And then what they layer into that, so they pull forward the culture, they pull forward the values, they bring forward these um, leaders who have uh, a history, a contemporary history of winning, and they partner that with a different way to play the game. So uh, the winning teams at that time were big, they were hulking players, um, they hit very hard, uh, they basically beat down the other teams and make it hard to score, and Toronto went a fundamentally different way. They said to succeed in the modern era, we're going with uh, youth and we're going with speed. And one of the things that I think they did, which was lovely, was they called the media together and they said, we're not interested in putting a so-so team or product on the ice. We're interested in building the next hockey dynasty. So we're going to tear down what we built. We're going to lean into cultures and, and value that's been around for a long time and play the game differently. And it's going to take years for us to win. But when we win, it won't be for a moment in time. It'll be the next dynasty. And the amazing thing is uh, the success is in the, the evidence of the product in the ice in, in rather short form. They have a team that's a top contending team that people believe, uh, perceive to be uh, the most likely to win the Stanley Cup in the year upcoming. An amazing story. It, it is interesting, Lucas, when you think about uh, these companies and, and bringing back the history and, and making that a part of what their future is. For the most part, being able to bring back the past is not an expensive venture to begin with. It's actually very reasonable, and it brings so much more to the organization as well. Yes, and well, you know, these, the sports organizations are particularly great examples because they do have um, oftentimes annual events or, or I mean, there's a regularity to them like the Olympics. Um, in, in, the, in the book, we talk a bit about, the, about Wimbledon, um, and Wimbledon's a great example for this because with that regular event, they are able to look at their history uh, almost like a portfolio, uh, like any brand could, and examine what do we want to keep, what, you know, what is still relevant, what is actually resonant um, today, and what, what might we um, uh, drop now and uh, focus on uh, elsewhere. Um, and, and Wimbledon is another great example, like Belmont, where they brought in a lot of technology to the sport that in you know, generations past they couldn't have imagined having a roof, for example, over, over their center court. But they make these decisions through the lens of their brand, through the lens of their legacy, and say, you know, is this true to our core ambition? And in the case of, uh, the Wim of Wimbledon, the core ambition is providing the best tennis out there. So when they make these decisions to adapt to their brand, um, they're great examples for other brands because they're using that core ambition to change the brand and evolve, not uh, not necessarily just trying to stay trendy. Are, are there, uh, and you mentioned GE, obviously, in the, in the article for Knowledge at Wharton but, and, and these other ones, but are there a, a wide range of legacy brands, ones that, you know, I'm 51 years of age that I would have known for the last 30 or 40 years that are making that transition or have recently fully made that transition so that they are more applicable for the current times so that they don't become lost in, in the in the new business culture. Mark? Uh, the book is the book is filled with them. And I, and I will say one of the fascinating things uh, about the writing uh, that people often find surprising is, we didn't just pick brands that are 100 years old and talk about how they stay relevant for years to come. We equally picked younger brands that were putting in infrastructure, values, culture, beliefs that were setting themselves up for enduring success. Our, our central point of view is legacy isn't something that you leave behind. It's something that you create every day, and that's as applicable to the company in year one as year 40, as year 100. Um, with that said, uh, Taylor Guitars is an example of a brand that I love that we cover in the book. Founded in 1974 uh, by Kurt Lustig and Bob Taylor, and one of the things they often ask themselves is, 
Um, not how will decisions made today inform the bottom line in the next 12 months, but how will decisions made today impact the success of the company for 10 years uh, and beyond? And if they feel that a 10-year decision impacts the company positively, then they go for it. They also did a lovely piece where, in real time, while the founders are still attached to the company, they've hired their successor. And so then rather than building a successful brand and then handing it off to the next person who has less vested interest, they're building camaraderie, community, values in common with the people who will continue to steer brand for the next 40-some-odd years. And so Taylor is a great example of a brand that has about the same kind of pedigree as Patagonia in terms of years of experience. The Ritz-Carlton is another amazing example of a brand in the book where we spoke to founding member Hervé Umler and we asked him, Ritz-Carlton brand is so, um, so prestigious, so iconic what do you hope persists in 100 years from now? And he, he paused for a moment and said, you know, if the brand looks the same, if people dress the same, if the physicality of this brand is the same in 100 years from now, people have misunderstood what this is all about. We're ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. We believe in a society with graciousness and manners. And it is that graciousness and manners and that approach to creating memories that last a lifetime for people, that's what needs to endure. So I hope people find the stories of the young brands inspiring, like a Tribeca Film Festival. Equally, I hope they find the brands of Wimbledon, uh, Toronto Maple Leafs, um, Ritz-Carlton, Taylor Guitars, uh, inspirational as well. well. The, the one surrounding Tribeca Film Festival I wanted to touch on for a second anyway is the fact that, and I didn't realize this, that the, the idea of getting to the film festival was not the original idea. Obviously, part of it was because of what happened on 9-11, uh, but it, it really started there with the relationship of the people in lower Manhattan with the fire and police that, uh, that had been involved in, in trying to save lives on 9-11, Lucas. Yeah, and this actually is a story we put right up front in the book because I believe the message resonates throughout many of the brands that we talk about. But the, the title of that, that story is Contribution Before Extraction. And that was something that the founders of uh, Tribeca Film Festival said to us, is that you know, we set out here not trying to make a million dollars. We set out here looking at a neighborhood that was trying to get back on its knees or off its knees uh, following 9-11. And their initial idea, as you mentioned, they didn't, they didn't set out with a film festival initially. They set out with something called Dinner Downtown, which was something um, like um, uh, it was an event where you invited 10 people, and those people invited 10 more um, to come down into the Tribeca neighborhood because they saw their local businesses going out of uh, business as the population in New York was not uh, heading down to, to uh, lower Manhattan following 9-11. Um, so they had a, a few of these and ultimately said, you know, this is really working. We're drawing t- people back into this neighborhood by the hundreds, you know, how, but how could we do that by the thousands? Um, and, uh, of course, they, you know, as, as you know, the Tribeca Film Festival's founders, they, uh, they have a background in film. Um, uh, uh, Robert De Niro is one of them. And um, they said, well, how can we uh, uh, draw this, this personal uh, ambition of ours in film and actually contribute something to Tribeca for years to come? And now, generations later, uh, here we are uh, with the Tribeca Film Festival still revitalizing the neighborhood in, in, in new ways. You know, uh, you mentioned the the, uh, the forward of the book with uh, Yvonne Chouinard of uh, Patagonia, and there was a, a, a part in there which really caught my eye, and, and you guys highlighted, is the fact that he uh, says, lasting brands move people, not just goods. And, and that's an amazing thing from my perspective, Lucas, is the fact that here's a gentleman that has had a company that has been so good for so long, bringing forth an idea of how important it is to connect the consumer now, but it's something that he's believed that has been important for, for a few decades. 
You know, you know what's funny too is one of the best stories we, we got when we sat down with him is we asked him, you know, what's your favorite product? I've worn Patagonia since I was a small child, and I, I was convinced he was going to have some kind of uh, some, some pair of shorts or shirt or or, or something from the '80s. <laughs> right. You know, and you know he's, he's an outdoorsman, and he said, you know, my favorite product is the learning center that we built for the kids here for the uh, the kids of our employees, and um, he said if we don't teach children to appreciate nature, they're not going to want to save nature down down the road. Um, and of course, that's 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 um, those aren't his words exactly, but the, the, that was the um, the emotion that he had behind this learning center was we are trying to build generations of people who care about the world in the ways that we've we've cared about the world. And I think he sees his brand um, in many ways, whether it's the products that they sell or the missions that they take on. Um, they do an annual Black Friday sale where they donate all the profits, you know, not just the the, the, the revenue, but the, uh, the the entire um, sorry, all the revenue to. Um, to, to charitable causes um, because they see the mission of the brand to better the world. Yeah. Great having you both with us. Lucas, Mark, thank you both for coming on the show today and talking about the book. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The book is Legacy in the Making, Building a Long-Term Brand to Stand Out in a Short-Term World. And also uh, there is the article, which is on the Knowledge of Wharton website right now, which you can check out that uh, involves Lucas and Mark as well. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.